0: Psalm 145 is is a, a special psalm. In fact, there is a Jewish tradition that the person who sings this song, this psalm, will be happy. Now, I throw that out to you. Try it. But Psalm 145 also has the distinction of being the last of David's psalms in the Hebrew Psalter, and this is the only psalm that is prefaced with the superscription, as we have it here, David's psalm of praise. Spurgeon said of Psalm 145 that it is David's crown jewel of praise. And it's not hard for us to figure why he would so describe this psalm, because it is by large saturated with praise rather than with thanksgiving and petition, which are normally found Throughout the Psalms, this Psalm is expressly a Psalm of praise to God, joyful praise to the Living God, and we are given no hint as to the circumstances that led David to write this particular Psalm, one forty-five. And that's okay because the fact is, praising God is an activity for which there should be no special occasion. All seasons are fitting. All seasons are appropriate for praising God. And uh, the question we want to answer this afternoon, very briefly, and we're just looking at a part of the psalm. The question is, for what does David praise the Lord? For what does David praise the Lord? David praises God, first of all, verses 1 and 2, for his preeminence. He praises God for his preeminence preeminence. He says there in verses 1 and 2, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. And that word extol really means to set on high above all others. So that when we praise God, what are we doing? We are Elevating him, we are lifting him up, as it were. We are setting him on high as the sovereign, supreme ruler, not only of our own lives, but of the entire universe. In extolling the Lord, we do so with the understanding that being the highest and most exalted being there is, he is in a class by himself. He's in a class by himself. That's why he's called holy, because that's the idea behind the holiness of God. The holiness of God means that he's totally, utterly other than anything else or anyone else. There is none like him. In fact, in the book of Revelation and in the Psalter, there is none like you, O Lord. You alone are holy. And this idea of the exalted, unique status of the Lord as the sovereign one is suggested for us in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 35 and 39, where the Lord himself told Israel these words. He says, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Know therefore today and lay to heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is No other. God reigns supreme, not only in heaven, but throughout the earth. And even though we look at our world today, and our world today is confused, it is crazy, it is chaotic, it is one massive mess. The fact is, even though Satan is the prince of this world, even though Satan is running the affairs of this world, here's the point, at the end of the day... God sits as a sovereign, sole sovereign ruler of the entire universe. Paul will say in the book of Ephesians concerning the Lord Jesus Christ that principalities and powers are subject to him. And in recognizing the Lord as his God and king, David was determined to exalt and elevate him as such. Now, one of the marvelous things about praising God, about exalting God, about this matter of extolling God as king, is that this transforms and revolutionizes our perspective, our outlook on the trials of life. If we want to have a healthy perspective towards life's challenges, towards life crises, we only have to understand how big, how great is almighty God and that is why we read in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 27 concerning Moses in the face of Pharaoh's wrath the word of God tells us by faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king here it comes for he endured as seeing him who is invisible Moses would not fear the wrath of Pharaoh. Why? Because he saw that beyond Pharaoh was the sovereign, exalted, supreme Lord of heaven and earth. And recognizing and extolling God as king, as the sovereign one, we would say also radically alters our view of ourselves. In fact, we see this in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, where Isaiah is testifying concerning this. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Uzziah, we know, was a very prominent king, was a very much loved king. Many commentators made the point here that somewhere along the line, Isaiah, and of course the nation, was so... Um, ensconced in the idea of this king ruling, everybody took pride in this king, but in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. Now, I don't know, it doesn't seem to me that that is a conclusive way, a a good conclusion to come to, but there is perhaps some merit in that interpretation. Suffice it to say, Isaiah says here that in that very year when this great king Uzziah died, he saw the Lord. And how did he see the Lord? He says, I saw him high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, a manifestation of the glory of God. Above him, verse 2, stood the seraphim. Each had, had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. Here it comes, verse 5. What was Isaiah's response? He said, Woe is me, For I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Would you have a humble view of yourself? Would you have a proper, humble view of yourselves? There's much talk today about self esteem about personal pride, but let me say to you, my friends, that when we are confronted, when we see and understand something of the glory of God, we cannot but be humbled in his presence. We cannot but praise and exalt him as the sovereign supreme Lord. Now David gives us a lesson as to how we ought to praise the Lord in view of his kingly sovereign prominence. Look again at verse 1. He says there, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day, I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Notice, first of all, as far as David was concerned, there was no end to his praising the Lord. He would praise the Lord endlessly. In fact, elsewhere he says, I'll praise the Lord He talks about the Lord giving him breath as long as I have my being among other things suggested here by a statement here in verse 1 is this, that praising the Lord would not be according to how he felt, would not be according to his mood obviously if he's going to praise God all day, if he's going to praise God forever and ever, it simply means that praising God cannot be according to our feelings, how we feel at any given time. The truth of the matter is, sometimes, if we are honest with ourselves, we come to the house of God, we come for worship, and we are not, we are not really in the mood to praise God. Somebody says, look, you mean that? Yes. <laughs> sometimes the trials of life, sometimes the pressures of life, sometimes anxieties have a way... Of dampening our fervor. But here's the point. Nowhere in Scripture suggests that we live the Christian life or we worship God based on how we feel. Worshipping God is a duty. Worshipping God is a responsibility we have. And we are commanded, it's a command given us to praise God. That means whether or not we feel like it, God is to be praised. Praising God is an act of the will. His praising God would not be dependent on his circumstances. It reminds us of what the prophet Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 3, verses 16 and following. He says, Though the fig tree will not blossom, and though there be no herds in the stall, and he's talking about economic conditions failing yet, he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord my God. Praising God is to be an ongoing, endless activity. Praising God is not dependent on our mood. It's not dependent on our circumstances. And praising God for the psalmist would not be confined to special occasions. So, in other words, we are, we are obliged to praise God not only on the Lord's day, not only when we are gathered together singing the praise of God, but every day in private, in our day to day activities, our lives should be one of praise to God. Praise is the one activity that we are summoned to do only, not only in this life, but throughout all eternity. If you ask the question, what will be be doing throughout the ages of eternity? No, we won't be sitting back having a good time. All of that is involved, yes, but here's the point. We will forever be praising God. That's what we were created for. We were created for the glory of God. We are created to praise God, to bring him honor and glory. By contrast, here's the point. We pray now, but in eternity, there will be no need for prayer in the true sense of the word. When it comes to praising God, such continual practices should not be left for when we get to heaven. It should begin in the here and now, right here and now. We are to begin making it a habit of praising God continually. We are to pray continually, Praise the Lord each and every day, regardless of how we may feel, in good times and in bad times, we are to praise the Lord. Psalm 34, verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always again. I will say, rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, rejoice evermore. Every moment of our lives beckons us to praise God. And by the way, that's different from thanksgiving. When we are giving thanks for God, yes, that could be said to be a a form of praise because we are attributing to God this activity of his providing for us, but praising God, here's the point, whereas thanksgiving, we would say, is thanking God, expressing our appreciation of God for his gifts, Praising God is expressing appreciation for Him. In thanksgiving, we appreciate, we express our appreciation for His gifts. In praise, we express our appreciation for Him. David expresses praise of the Lord by extolling Him as God and King, but also in verses 1 and 2, he uses another term in connection with his praising the Lord. He uses extolling in the first place to lift up on high the Lord, to exalt him, set him up on high above all else. But he uses now the word bless in verses 1 and 2. He says there, I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Now what does that mean? We talk about God blessing us. And we understand what that means. But then the psalmist says here, I will bless the Lord forever and ever. And inherent in the Hebrew word he uses for bless. This word that he uses in the Hebrew carries the idea, carries this idea of kneeling, suggesting that part of what it means to praise God is to be humble before him. Literally, the psalmist is saying here as we praise God, we are to assume a posture, a kneeling posture before him. We are to assume, in effect, a posture of humility. And what's the point? The point is this, that one who is proud and arrogant can never truly praise the Lord. Because, you see, it is of the very nature of praising God that the focus shift from us to none other but God. And here we see something marvelous about the sound. It's unlike King Nebuchadnezzar. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar? King Nebuchadnezzar, the word of God, tells us God had blessed this king. His kingdom had expanded. His kingdom ruled over the world. And there came a time he was trotting on his roof and he thought to himself you know man you're a great you're good you're good he says is this not Babylon which my hand built by the might of my power what was he doing he was arrogating to himself the glory that belonged to God and of course we know what happened to him he was greatly humbled God caused him to act like one of the beasts of the field. And here it was that although he had the privilege of being king over Israel, David did not, David did not, through pride and arrogance, arrogate to himself the Lord's authority as the sovereign supreme king over all. David understood that although he occupied such a prominent role as king in Israel, he recognized the need to bow, to kneel before God. That's the word he uses. The Hebrew word here for bless carries this idea of kneeling before God. Here's the point. One of the deterrents to pride, to arrogance, is to recognize the supreme sovereignty of Almighty God and worship Him. That is why never are we more human. Never are we more uh, fulfilling the role for which we were created as human beings as when we are engaged in the act of worshipping the living God. Worshipping the living God puts us in our place. It makes us human. Why am I saying this? Because you look at man today and never is man more Beastly. Never is man more horrible than when he forgets God, than when he becomes arrogant, than when he lifts up himself in pride before Almighty God. Worship has a way of putting us in our place. David praises God, first of all then, for his preeminence. But notice secondly, David praises God for his power. He praises God for His power, verses three to seven. And in these verses, in these verses, verses three to seven, David spells out the nature of that praise that should be rendered to God for His power. Notice the first thing he suggests here in verse three. He suggests in verse three that such praise that we render to God for His power should be proportional to His power. The praise we render to God should be proportional to his power. That is to say, our praise to God should be of such that it befits the greatness of God. It befits precisely who God is in terms of his power. The fervor and intensity of our praise to God should be reflective of how great a God we serve. So notice what David says in verse 3 underscoring this idea that our praise to God should be proportional to his power. Here's what he says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Now that word that is used there for greatly, meod, is the Hebrew word, it speaks of strength and power. It is sometimes translated very, but inherent in that word, meod, is the idea of, of strength and power. And the idea the psalmist would have us get here is that when it comes to praising God, praising God is an exercise that should be undertaken with vigor. It should be undertaken with passion. There should be real, heartfelt praise of God. In other words, it's not simply a mechanical parroting. In other words, worship of God, praising God, must touch us at a fundamental level, deep in our souls, whereby we praise him with fervor. I will bless the Lord. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and what? All that is within me. You say, what does that kind of praise look like? What does it look like? You read through the Psalms, you see the various expressions of passionate, heartfelt praise sometimes. And I know this is not a popular thing with um, us Reformed Christians, but here's the truth. Worshiping God, praising God, sometimes calls for little volume. <laughs> yes? Shout to the Lord, he says. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. No, we're not talking about going crazy. We're not talking about going berserk. We're not talking about getting irreverent. But here's the point. Praising God must be passionate. We get excited about football. We get excited about politics. We are to be excited in talking and speaking concerning our God. That's, what, that's the idea here. We are to do it Greatly. With strength, with vigor, we should praise God with all the strength, with all the fervor with which we are capable by God's grace. Somebody says, what are you trying to turn us into, Pentecostal? (laughs) Oh, no, I'm not trying to get us Pentecostal, uh, but, you know, the the word of God suggests that when it comes to praising God, we must praise him, right? Right? All right, how often is it, as I said, people get excited about everything else except the Lord. And as we saw in our study this morning, even when it comes to contending for the faith, he says we're to do it what? Earnestly. The fact is, when we consider who God is, when we consider the infinite wonder and greatness of his power, he is worth our strongest unreserved praise. We're told here in verse 3 that not only is God greatly to be praised, but because he's great, he's not not only to be praised greatly because he's great, but that his greatness is what? Unsearchable. What this means then in simple terms is that there's just no way of quantifying, there's just no way of expressing in human language his greatness. In practical ways we could illustrate this, we could look for example at his creation, there's much marvel in this creation that attests to who God is in terms of his unsearchable grandeur and power. Back in Psalm 139, the psalmist says he contemplated the vast extent of God's ability to know him inside out. He exclaimed in Psalm 139 and verse 6, here's what he says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. He says, God, you are so great. So the very real sense, here's the truth. Even though we say here, the suggestion here is that our praise to God should be proportional to, To his power, to his greatness, in a very real sense, you and I can never praise God enough for the simple reason that his his vast power, his unsearchable power, defies any human language, the ability of any human tongue to express it. As Paul, in praising God, also exclaimed in Romans chapter eleven, verses thirty-three to thirty-four, he says this: "Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God!" He says this: "How unsearchable are His judgments, and how unscrutable are His ways!" For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counsel. Paul is saying, "Listen, look, I'm floored." And praising God for His power, such praise, David suggests should be first of all proportional to His power. but secondly, such praise, verse four, should be proclaimed to succeeding generations. Listen to what he says in verse four, he says this: "One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts." Or praise to God should be proclaimed to succeeding generations. The point here is this, that the very fact of God's unsearchable greatness should naturally result in each generation telling the next about it. Also suggested in verse 4 is that as families worship the Lord, praising him, children and grandchildren will also learn about the power of God and in turn pass on that knowledge, pass on that practice, to future generations. From this we gather that there should be instructional teaching element to our praise. So here's the point. Praising God is not simply some emotional affair. It is not some irrational expression of our emotions. Praising God is intelligent. Praising God should be instructional. Praising God should have a teaching element and as we, as we praise God, the psalmist is suggesting here that as our children, our grandchildren, see, observe us, hear us praising God, they will in turn be able to express to the next generation the greatness and power of God. As the saying goes, children live what they learn. And what greater lesson can they learn than the truth about who God is and what God has done is continuing to do what greater lesson can they learn than to worship and praise the living, all powerful God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Our praise of God, the psalmist is suggesting here, then, should be what? Contagious, impacting our children, our grandchildren, and generations to come. In fact, as parents, we are commanded to teach our children what it means to fear and honor the Lord. We are to teach them. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 and 7. No, this is the commandment, the statutes, the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise we spoke this morning, and you've been, if you have been following the news, and I don't want to go over and, and harp on it necessarily, but you know a lot has been going on in our schools by way of at the attempts, the systematic attempt, to mess up our children, to sexualize our children, to teach our children perversity, to teach them all manner of sinful practices along the line of human sexuality. And here's the point. If we are going to keep our children, if we are going to impact our generation for God, the Word of God tells us that we need to pass on to them biblical, scriptural values. Psalm 78, 1 through 4, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching, and plan your ears to my words. I will open my mouth in a parable, I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, and the wonders he has done. And we do that through praising the Lord. We are to live a life of praise to God, worship to God, such that our children will be able to observe that and will in turn be impacted and impact their generations to come. And you'll see this idea repeated in verses 6, 11, 22 of our text. Notice what the psalmist says there in those verses. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. I will declare your greatness They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 11, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. That's an awesome task. That's an awesome responsibility we have, but... That's God's program. That's God's program. Regarding our praise of God, praise to God for his power, David suggests then, number one, such praise should be proportional to God's power. Number two, such praise should be proclaimed to succeeding generations. And then thirdly and finally, David suggests that such praise should be personally practiced, should be personally practiced. Verses 5 through 7. We just read those verses. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. He makes it a personal resolve to praise the Lord. No, he would not just praise the Lord corporately when gathered, when in the gathering of God's people for public worship. He personally would undertake to worship God. He would make it his business. He says there in verse 6, They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, And I, here it comes again, I will declare your greatness. Consequence, verse 7, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. What he's talking about there in those verses, verses 5 through 7, is this, that praising God is contagious. And it is through our praising God witnessing to God's power, to God's glory in that manner that people will be drawn to the Lord. That's God's program for us in our day and age. We are to worship him. We are to praise him, not just by lip, but by life. May God grant that these things will be so in your life and mine. For his name's sake, amen.